0: This is Interviews, a podcast from the National Academy of Sciences that provides first-person accounts of the lives and work of Academy members. In this series of one-on-one conversations, scientists talk about what inspired them to pursue the careers they chose and describe some of the most fascinating aspects of their research. Larry Squire came close to becoming a professional gambler. For one whirlwind year during graduate school, he terrorized the card tables of Palo Alto, doubling his stipend by playing poker and prompting the psychology department to ask him to leave. That risk-taking streak carried Squire into the fledgling field of brain-based memory research, and it helped him craft a series of experiments that dramatically changed our understanding of memory. Working with amnesic patients, Squire discovered that there are two kinds of long-term memory, declarative and non-declarative, and that when one fails, the other can be used to learn new tasks. His work also revealed the first maps of the brain structures at work when we remember. Squire is professor of psychiatry, neurosciences, and psychology at the University of California, San Diego. He was elected to the National Academy of Sciences in 1993.
1: I'm Larry Squire. I'm a neuroscientist. I was elected in 1993.
0: Where did you grow up?
1: I grew up mostly in Ohio, in Columbus. Early on I lived in the middle of the town, uh, played games in the streets and the alleys, and when I was ten we moved to what you would call the suburbs, although it was really undeveloped with a lot of acreage and open woods and uh, no curbs on the streets, places for hiking around and playing in the woods and a lot more room. I liked sports. I liked uh, playing basketball and football, touch football especially. I liked uh, all games. I liked uh, walking in the woods. I liked watching birds, bird watching.
0: What did your parents do?
1: My mother was a homemaker. My father uh, was a businessman. He, he owned his own business and uh, you know, a self-made uh, of the Depression. Uh, he was a wholesaler, in heating and air conditioning, and a well-organized person and, uh, who, who uh, developed his business over, over a number of years.
0: How did you first become interested in science?
1: Well, I think it was gradual. And I always say, you know, the older you get, the further back you can see the roots of what you're doing. And, I didn't really know that I was headed towards science until much later, but uh, I remember when I was five, the teacher handed out these big crayons and while she was going around the whole classroom, this is first grade, handing out these crayons and everybody's sitting there, nothing to do, I had heard somewhere that if you mixed all the colors together you get black. So I tried doing that and I guess that was my first experiment. and then in high school, uh, I went to a private day school and uh, everybody's, everybody's great uh, requirement in their junior year was to make up pub- public speaking and deliver a, a speech to the student body. It was something everybody was terrified of, and, but we were able to pick your own topic. So I picked hypnosis, which is interesting because it's not that far I mean, it's a fringe of what of where I ended up in a way. Uh, so somehow there I was moving in a direction, in a direction like that. Uh, and then when I went to college, I took science courses mostly. And they seemed most interesting and most concrete, and I liked facts. And I ended up majoring in psychology, but I didn't have any interest in clinical psychology. It was always just uh, experiment. Uh, facts and uh, lawfulness of behavior, and animal work, and that sort of thing. I was very inspired by my introductory psychology course, which was which was really a uh, a course slanted towards uh, physiology. Uh, it was taught by a a, wo- a very talented woman named Celeste McCullough, who uh, taught a number of people who became neuroscientists. Uh, this was at Oberlin College, which is a a place that. Uh, generated a lot of neuroscientists. In fact, three three former presidents of the Society for Neuroscience came from Oberlin. And she uh, is famous herself for, for something called the McCullough After Effect, a visual after effect that she did, first described and, and named, named after her. So I was very inspired by that class and then by other cl- courses in psychology that I took and in some of the courses in biology that I was able to take. And But I was always gravitating towards those parts of psychology that seemed more uh, amenable to experiment, uh, something that had the possibility of moving towards mechanism. Um, I became interested in memory, which, which really captures that preference because, uh, most importantly, you can study it in animals. It's, uh, it's complicated and it's, you know, it's a human faculty, and yet at the same time you can study it in simple animals, you can study it in invertebrate animals. And one can move move towards mechanism in some detail, and in the end, I mean, I didn't know it at the time, but I mean among within what we would call cognitive neuroscience, the most mature subfields really are vision and memory. So I found myself moving towards memory. and then I went to uh, Stanford for one unfortunate year where I was uh, sidetracked by uh, something that became a lifetime hobby, namely uh, playing poker. I did well at poker and matched my stipend, but um, that didn't fare me well with the department. So, uh, Why? Well, because I was spending most of my time down at the card rooms in Palo Alto. I mean, I didn't really connect with the psychology department there. I'd gone to graduate school in psychology. but. I really didn't understand. I think at the time that what I was really looking for was something that was more biological. You know, I mean, again, I just—I mean, so much of psychology was soft to me, and 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 there's always there was always the clinical part of the program, and I didn't know it. At the, I mean, at the time when when one went to graduate school, one didn't go visit these places and really learn. I mean, one just went, and I didn't understand that the biological part of what I was interested in was really at the medical school and not in the psychology department. So for one reason or another, and because they had these card rooms there, and because I was had pocket money for the first time in my life, it was it was just too appealing to play poker instead of uh, hanging out at the department. I really got my education in the card room at, at Palo Alto. It was a fascinating place. The uh, man who ran the part, the card room, I mean, card, card, these were legal card rooms in, you know, by, established by local option. And uh, there were a number of them. But this particular one was quite high level because the guy who ran the whole place was quite an accomplished card player himself. And they played up this one particular game called lowball. It was uh, no limit, no limit lowball, which means you can bet any amount of money at any time. So that probability is less important than uh, tactics. And 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 the, and the ability to uh, read other players and so on, and uh, so it was very rewarding, you know. It was to, to be able to. I got pretty. I was pretty good at it. I discovered. I was one of the better players that played there. Yeah, it was a pretty interesting time.
0: Did you ever think about abandoning science to become a professional poker player during that one year?
1: Well, as a matter of fact. Yeah, I was there. Was an there was another p- p- guy who I met through the card room who was a, a, a graduate student in statistics, and he and I, we may have been the two best players that played at this place, and so we were pretty happy with ourselves, and and we did consider that briefly. I mean, especially after the the psych, the, the graduate school part of it didn't work out very well, there was a, there was a a time when I thought about it. Uh, but it was—it's a pretty unidimensional kind of life, you know, just playing cards. It's—it's it's rewarding when you win, and you know, but, but you know, in in the end, it's—it's it's pretty unidimensional. So, um, I never really thought about it very seriously. You know, it, it was a passing thought. I knew. I mean, I, it wasn't like I felt that I had failed in ca- my career mm-hmm. because it was just that I had sidetracked myself. So I didn't feel like well now, I, I had I hadn't succeeded or I didn't. You know, I, I just uh, did something else that year, so. So Stanford suggested that I move on and uh, offered me a, a master's degree. So I wrote to MIT and I, and I said, uh, would it be possible for me to reactivate my admission? I had been accepted at MIT and I chose Stanford. I wrote to, M- I wrote to MIT and said, could I, uh, after I get my master's degree, could I come to MIT? And I was, had the good fortune that the head of the department wrote me back and said, well, why do you want to wait to get your master's degree? Why don't you just come now? So the best thing that ever happened, really, in my education was I had the chance then to go to MIT, which was exactly the kind of department that I was looking for. It was a very unusual place. It was called psychology at the time, but it was, uh, had been organized by a, uh, an extraordinary man named Hans-Lucas Teuber. And he had a department that was really a department in what we would now call neuroscience, really, uh, behavioral, cognitive, and and systems neuroscience. And, and this department later, in fact, is, is now known as the Department of Brain and Cognitive Science at MIT. Is one of the better places, one of the top places that one could go to study neuroscience. So it was on its way to that being that kind of department, and so I found I fell into that and with. Uh, just good by good fortune. So in those days then, I began my work with uh, animals, rats, mostly rat work, and uh, nothing particularly ins- inspirational, nothing particularly great. In 1970, a paper appeared in a, the journal Brain, in which it said that when patients became memory impaired because of a lesion or, or, or a brain, brain injury or a disease, that they had a retrograde amnesia, meaning a loss of past events that extended back decades and decades into their life. I was completely astounded by this, because I had grown up at MIT with a whole welter of information about memory and the brain. And one of the key concepts was a concept known as consolidation, which refers to the idea that memory is not fixed at the time of learning, but rather it takes time to be set or to be stabilized. In that period of time, nothing was really understood about the mechanism of it, but it was, there was a lot of interest in how long it took. And all the ideas about how long it took were like ideas about an hour or, or a day. And those would be experiments, say, done on a rat or a mouse, where you animal is trained to do something, and then a, a treatment is given at different times, after, one of several times afterwards, like, a, like an electroconvulsive shock, and, and one finds that there's a gradient of effect so that the longer you wait before you do the, tr- the treatment, the less of an effect. And the time course of, of, of when you move from having an effect to not having an effect was always something like an hour or, or, or a day. And now here I'm reading a paper which says in humans, the thing is to go 40, 50 years. I mean, it was just completely just lost by this paper. So I thought that I wanted to study this myself. So I had the chance then to move to move from studying these biochemistry of memory in mice to doing something with humans. And being in the psychiatry department, it was the case that uh, at the hospitals that our university was affiliated with, uh, the treatment of electroconvulsive therapy was being used, ECT, which was known to be a, an effective treatment for depression, but also a treatment that had side effects, and the side effects included memory. And that was those memory effects were known to include both an amnesia, a failure of new learning capacity, as well as a retrograde amnesia, a loss of prior memories. So my question was, well, when people have ECT, how far back does, it go, does, the, does the effect go? And then I realized that, well, this, you know, this is really a, a difficult problem to study retrospectively. How is one going to really sample past time periods in a way that's uh, meaningful? Because up in, I mean, there had been 100 years of this kind of discussion in the literature of, of clinical neurology. But the problem with it was that if you ask people about, if you just simply interview people and ask them about their past, in the end you're gonna be asking them easy, difficult questions about recent time events, but easier questions about past events. Where you're gonna say, for example, what did you have for breakfast yesterday? And what's your home address? And those just aren't comparable questions. And so any, a different, any difference you get in terms of the loss across time is gonna be completely confounded by the level of the, the kind of question you're asking. So the idea was to develop a new technique to, that could actually sample past timers in an equivalent way and we worked for months and months on this and thought about it and over and over again. And so I guess I mean, my first really independent work was this issue. And what we did in the end was to develop a, a memory test which asked about television programs which only had broadcast for one year. And we had Nielsen ratings for all these questions and so we knew that those things had been exposed to the public equivalent amounts. So we, we were able to pretty come close to making the assumption that all this information we were asking about <clears throat> had been learned at the same strength at the year that it was available and then forgotten at similar rates. And we had some evidence to suggest that was true. And so we gave the uh, half of the test to patients before ECT and another half, the other half of the test to patients after ECT. And we found that we did get retrograde amnesia, but it was a gradient of retrograde amnesia that covered about three years. So this was really the first time uh, that there had been a description of uh, of a consolidation type event that lasted longer than an hour and it suggested that what's happening as memory stabilizes is not a conversion between a temporary short-term memory and a stable long-term memory, but rather long-term memory itself has to consolidate. And that consolidation process can take a few years. Now, 20 years later, we were able to actually study that same problem in a much more uh, rigorous way by studying patients, uh, by, br- by bringing the problem to anatomy. Uh, and that is by studying patients who had known MRI-confirmed circumscribed damage to the hippocampus. And, uh, and th- that damage to the hippocampus in these patients had occurred on a known calendar day because it had come from an anoxic event or an ischemic event. And so when we gave those kinds of patients these te- uh, similar kinds of tests that asked about uh, information in the public domain, news events, for example, what we found was the exact same thing we had found with ECT, that is a gradient of retrograde amnesia that extended over a period of, of, of a few years. And so that again tells us that this uh, process of memory fixation and consolidation takes a few years and it also tells us that the hippocampus is now, now we're moving towards something we can get our hands on, that is the, the brain structure, the hippocampus, and it tells us that the hippocampus itself has a temporary role to play in memory and that that role in memory extends over a period of a few years and after that time has passed that structure is no longer involved and no longer required for memory to be retrieved successfully.
0: How did that address the initial paper that sent you into this field which was showing that you know memories were gone from decades ago?
1: Right well so that's uh, that's uh, another question and that's, a key, that's a, a key question that turned out to take even a few more years to actually completely settle in the and uh, what it turned out is that these patients that had been described in the early paper were all patients who had widespread amounts of damage, not just involving the hippocampus, but damage that included uh, the, st- the structures around the hippocampus, as well as even lateral temporal cortex areas that are thought to be important in the storage, uh, ultimate storage process itself. Basically, patients who had rather widespread damage outside of these classical memory areas like the hippocampus. And indeed, when you carry out these same experiments then on patients that have some of these larger damage, you can find memory impairments that go back for decades. And and we've been able to see that as well.
0: Well, that seems to suggest there's sort of a, a map for how this consolidation takes place and where it takes place in the brain. So what have you found about how memories are made and stored?
1: The key idea that developed over a period of years is that memory is not a single faculty of the mind that memory is composed of a number of different abilities or faculties which have different brain systems responsible for them. And uh, in a way it's a different story. Going back say 40 or 50 years, the idea really was that memory is of one piece and uh, the famous amnesic patients that were studied in the early days were patients that seemed to have a memory problem. That is, it didn't seem to be much more to to say that they were profoundly forgetful and that forgetfulness seemed to apply to all manners of things, to memory for names and faces and musical passages and odors and things touched and so on. Um, But there was one hint that it wasn't quite as simple as that and that hint was that in the early days it had been shown that these same patients who were profoundly impaired in learning and remembering were could require motor skills, hand, hand-eye coordination tasks of getting better at, at, at doing things like drawing in a mirror. And so it was thought, well, motor skills are different, but everything else is of one piece. We had the idea back in the early days that that uh, it might not be quite as simple as that, and that, that, that these amnesic patients seem to have some other abilities that couldn't so easily be understood, weren't understood. And so the key, key experiment that uh, opened this up we were able to carry out in uh, 1980, in which we showed that uh, these same kinds of patients who are so impaired in so many domains could acquire the skill of mirror reading, reading words reversed in a mirror. So this is not a motor skill, it's a perceptual skill. And so it broadened the domain of memories that lie outside the system that's damaging in memory impairment, amnesia. This led us to a formulation, uh, to a distinction that we made originally between what we now call, what we called then declarative memory on the one hand and procedural memory on the other hand. Some years later, this was elaborated or, and modified to be a distinction between declarative memory and non-declarative memory. Declarative memory is the kind of memory we mean when we use the term memory in everyday language. It's what we remember about yesterday and the day before in our life and so on. The facts and events that make up our memories. Non-declarative memory refers to a whole domain of unconscious memory abilities, where performance changes as a result of an experience, and in that sense we would use the term memory, but where performance changes without requiring any conscious memory content or even the idea that memory is being used. So motor skills are an example of that. When, when, you, when you learn a motor skill, you, you're expressing your knowledge through performance, not through recollection. You're just performing a procedure. Tennis stroke, for example, or riding a bicycle. You know, We learn how to do it, but we don't have anything factual to report about it, you know, we can, you know, unless we're a coach, you know, I mean, we, you know, we, we just, per, we perform it, we say here, you know, the, the knowledge we have is embedded in the procedure and we perform it and that illustrates, that illustrates the knowledge. The discovery of the multiple nature of memory was a pivotal moment in the memory research because we couldn't, we, none, none of us could understand why none of these things were working out in animals. When, when the amnesic patients were first began to be studied, the very first thing people tried to do was to set up an animal model of it because you wanted to understand, well, you want an animal model of it so we can know exactly, well, what is the anatomy? What are the structures that are being damaged in these patients? And, and, and then we want to understand how the structures work and I mean, all moving all the way towards detailed mechanism. But when we would uh, make what appeared to be similar lesions in the animals, and that included rats and monkeys, these monkeys and rats could usually do these tasks. And there was a period that actually went on for almost 20 years, in the 60s and 1970s, where things were just a mess. And uh, people even said, well, the monkeys and the rats are maybe they're different, you know, they're organized differently than the humans. But that seemed unsatisfactory, because you know, there's a lot of universality to biology, and these are all mammals, and something as simple and basic as forming a memory, one would think they'd use some of the same mechanisms and same structures. Well, it turned out that the whole key to the thing was the fact that the, many, of the mem- many of the tasks that were being given to experimental animals in the name of memory were really non-declarative memory tasks. There are a number of tasks that you and I learn declaratively, but an animal learns it by habit formation or by non-declarative. So you can't even use the same task. You can't, I mean, the whole thing just had to be rethought. So once that was all work- worked out, beginning about 1980, which was about the time when we did those first experiments and also the time when the animal models started to be worked on. We then could uh, give the right kinds of tasks to the monkeys and to the rats, and we set up a monkey program ourselves at that, at that time with the idea that we were going to uh, solve the question of what are the structures in the medial aspect of the temporal lobe that, when damaged, cause what we call amnesia. Because it wasn't known. I mean, it was, we knew it was the hippocampus was thought to be important, but nobody knew about whether the amygdala was important, and, and nobody knew anything about these structures adjacent to the hippocampus which were named were named but not understood and even the boundaries of them weren't really understood but once the animal model was in place and once we had the declarative non declarative memory distinction in hand it really became one of these very satisfying chases where we knew it was a solvable problem and it was just going to take time to do it. And It took about 12 years to do it and at the end of the 12 years we were able to publish what we call the you know the medial temporal lobe memory system. That is, we knew we identified the structures that are the structures that, when damaged, cause this declarative memory impairment, what we call amnesia, and uh, includes the hippocampus and these uh, and parahippocampal cortices that lie adjacent to the hippocampus, and not the amygdala. It turns out because the amygdala is involved in emotion and emotional learning, but it's not part of the declarative memory system. All of that began, all that came together then you know, we had the right kinds of t- we, knew, we knew what kind of tasks to use, we knew what the brain structures were, and we learned that through the monkey work and then, and we understood this phenomenon of consolidation. so those were all these different threads then that came together around the early 1990s, middle 1990s. At that point, the questions multiplied more questions. There was issues about uh, understanding what some of these other memory systems really were and, and where they were located and how they how they operated. For example, there was this fascinating issue that uh, some tasks that we learn through memorization and by declarative memory, and that's the only way we seem to learn it, the monkey, even the monkey, will learn the task normally with a lesion of that same area, even you know, without a hippocampus, without, a, without these hippocampal areas, the monkey learns the task normally. So what's going on? Well, we thought, well, maybe the animal can learn it as a habit. And if he's learning it by habit, he's learning it with his caudate nucleus, with his basal ganglia. And so lesion studies of the monkey actually demonstrated that. But then the question came up, well, do we have a system like that? I mean, is it, you know, if we learn it declaratively, could we also learn it non-declaratively? And if we learn it non-declaratively, do we learn it unconsciously? And if we learn unconsciously, what does it mean to learn something like that unconsciously that you and I would memorize? So we, we had available these study patients who have these large lesions who are profoundly impaired, really can't learn anything new at all. They're totally amnesic from one moment to the next, and five minutes after they do something, they can't tell you what they were doing. And we gave them these tasks that the monkeys can learn. And so you and I learned, I'm, giving, I'm describing a task that you and I could learn in 30 trials, and the monkey learns in 500 trials or 1,000 trials. And we asked the question, could these patients learn it in like a monkey, basically? And it turned out that uh, they could. They learned it in about 500 or 1,000 trials. It took them 18 weeks to learn the task, uh, getting about 40 to 80 trials a a week, two visits a week on non-consecutive days. And uh, and it was completely unconscious. I mean, it was amazing to watch because the patients themselves couldn't understand what they were doing. And there was one famous moment when the patient said, "Um, how am I doing this? And the experimenter said, "Well, are you doing it because you remember from previous trials which object is correct and which object is incorrect?" And he said, "No, no. It simply goes from here, pointing to his head, to there, pointing to the table. And that was all he could say about it. In other words, he was describing the, the performance of a habit. It was almost like he was describing a tennis stroke. You know, well, here it is. You know, here. You know, what do you? What more can I tell you about it? Here, here it is. Watch it happen. So that that was an example of." Uh, unconscious learning and it taught us really that unconscious memories, unconscious learning abilities are ubiquitous and very powerful and they're there in all of us all the time. I mean even in our patient that we were studying it, we suddenly we just realized how he, could, how he could do so many things like walk around his house even though he couldn't draw a floor plan of his house sitting outside the house. He navigated his house perfectly normally all the time. He even took a short L-shaped walk around his house every day and around the block and we wondered you know, why wouldn't he just get lost? Well, over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of trials, he had it all, it was all a habit. He had it all learned by habit.
0: What advice would you give to a young person interested in a career in science?
1: What's important is to, is to find something that you love. That, you know, that because the, if, you, if, you, uh, if you love something, you'll be better at it. And the things that you're good at are the things you tend to love. And so, one wants, you, you want to just use your, uh, your intuitions and, and shop around, sample different things until and, and, and you find something that you feel excited about. Uh, and and, and uh, the things that you're excited about is what you're going to be good at. So uh, in science, within science, there's you know, the, the range of possible things to find, to look to and to study is, is, is enormous and even within neuroscience. It's uh, you know completely different fields from from cellular molecular neuroscience on the one hand to psychological almost psycho psychology at the other end of the continuum or cognitive neuroscience. People people have different abilities and different predilections and different uh, skills and talents and one has to just shop and sample across that until you find uh, what what it is that is uh, that resonates most strongly with.
0: Since 1863, the nation's top scientists have been honored with membership in the National Academy of Sciences. Today, there are more than 2,500 in the NAS membership, of whom approximately 200 have won Nobel Prizes. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Interviews and invite you to join us again for another inspiring conversation.